done some kind of fasting, I don't see the results of it until afterwards. And so if you didn't sense anything, don't get discouraged. You just did what God told you to do, and that's your part, and God will do, God will do his part. But I want to share with you, we, song, we sang tonight some good songs about God's power and God's deliverance. And as I was just kind of praying while we were singing, I've been a Christian 43 years, and I've been in Pentecostal churches. I've been in Word of Faith churches. I've been a preacher for over 25 years. And we've sang and taught about the power of God, but very few people really experience it. The church is still so much in bondage. People's lives are so bound up with all kinds of things that this world and the enemy is pressing in on us. And so the question is, where is the power? Is it something we just sing about on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or in your shower or where you sing your favorite worship songs? Where is it? It ought to be making an impact. We should be seeing people set free. Jesus said, we'll see this tonight, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, to set the captives free, and he's empowered his church to do that. Where's the power? Well, I believe part of the answer is in the instructions that Jesus gave us from the very beginning. We're living in a time where there's tremendous confusion in the body of Christ, a time when well-known speakers are going off on all kinds of tangents. And then we see some people that are, that are well-known, and all of a sudden we see that they've fallen into immorality. And we wonder, what is going on? Where is it? Where do people get off? And I believe they get off by just not following the simple instructions that Jesus gave to us. We get distracted so easily. Jesus said very simply to each of the disciples when he came to them and called them, he said, Matthew, or was Levi at the time, he said, Peter, John, Andrew, James, you come, follow me. And that's where he met you. Wherever he met you, whether it was this altar here, in your living room, wherever it was, Jesus came to you personally, and however he did it, he said to you, you, come, follow me. And that was it. That's your lifelong instructions. He said, leave everything you have, and then come and follow me. But somewhere along the line, through the journey of three and a half years with them, he gave them that opportunity again because he said some things to them. And this is where, where we're going to pick up tonight in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. After he said these things, he said to them, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny his cross, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Now he defined a little more clearly what it meant to follow him. It wasn't just to be a groupie. Back when I was young, there were all kinds of bands that traveled around. I was, I was actually before Woodstock. I was in my college when Woodstock happened. But, but some of these groupies, the deadheads and things like that, they had groupies that followed them around. And they just wanted to be where they were at their next concert. Their purpose of life was to be at the next concert where they were. And, and most of those people are dead now. But Jesus said this, if you, want to come, if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, here's what you've got to do. In order to follow me, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross, and then you can follow me. Why did he say those requirements? Because to follow him, 
You have to be where he is and do what he does. And those, these are the two things, three things that Jesus did. He denied himself. He eventually took up his cross and he followed his father's will. So this is what the commission is for every Christian. Whether you're in full-time ministry or whether you're a housewife or you're a father and you're working out in the workplace, your call as a Christian is to follow Christ. And to follow him is to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow him. We're living in an age when the church is inundated with teachings, and most of them are valid teachings, are about all the blessings that we're going to get by following him. The wonderful blessings that he's provided for us, and he is a God who will bless us. In the Garden of Eden, when God first set man up, it was a place of overwhelming blessing and provision. So God is not stingy at all. He wants you to be blessed and enjoy your life, but you cannot really be blessed and enjoy your life if you're doing it apart from him. Because the ultimate blessing is in the relationship with him. So perhaps the reason we don't see the power in our life, perhaps the reason we don't see power in the church, they saw it in the first generation. It changed the world. It turned the world upside down. Perhaps we're not seeing that effect in the church today because very few Christians are really denying themselves taking up their cross, and then following their master. So we're going to look tonight at what the Bible says about how to do that. Because that's an overwhelming thing. In the Old Testament, God commanded his people to do things. He, listen carefully to this. Because if you don't listen carefully to what I'm saying, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna miss it. In the Old Testament, God commanded them to do things he knew they couldn't do. Well, that doesn't seem very fair. But that's what the law was. God gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, and then there were about 600 other things on top of that they could do and not do. And God commanded them to do them perfectly, knowing they were not capable of doing it. Why would God do that? Romans gives us the answer. Because by the law came the knowledge of sin. Man has ingrained in his fallen nature a confidence that somehow I can make myself better. Somehow, if I just try hard enough, and as a Christian, if I have God's help with me, but I'm the one that's doing this, with God's help, I'm going to be able to to love people. With God's help, I'm going to be able to fast. With God's help, I'm going to be able to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow me. But most of us read that, and we shirk away from it, because somewhere down inside, we don't believe we can do it. So in the Old Testament, God commanded them to do things he knew they couldn't do, because he wanted to prove to them what they couldn't do in their own strength. And many of us, he's still trying to convince that same lesson. But God has not called us in the New Testament to do something that he has not also enabled us to do. So what we're going to look tonight at, we're going to look tonight at, at Jesus and how he did these things. How he denied himself. How he was able to take up his cross and how he was able to perfectly father, follow the Father who sent him. 
Jesus came as a man to give us a model of how we can answer this call that seems impossible to us. To do that, let's go to Philippians chapter 2. And here we're getting instructions from the Apostle Paul. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul saying, the way Christ thought, the attitude he had about things, I want you to have this same attitude. And so now what he's going to do is he's going to show us the attitude and the decisions that Christ made. Verse 6. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. This is talking about who he was before he was born as the baby Jesus that we celebrated just last month. He was the second person of the Godhead. John explains it this way in the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. That's the second expression of God. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He, so he's a person, was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14 of John chapter 1 says, And that Word became flesh, Jesus, and dwelt among us. So when he left heaven as the second person of the Godhead to come to earth here, he had to come and become a human being. He was all God, but he was still a human being. We can't get into why. We're going to do this when we get closer to Easter. We're going to spend some time this year looking at what he did on that cross, what he did with his death, burial, and resurrection for us, and why it's so so important to us not just to look back historically and say, Jesus died to pay for my sins so I can go to heaven. It's far more powerful than that. So we're looking at, so he was equal with God. He had all the glory and all honor that the God the Father has. This is what that verse says. But he made himself of no reputation. Now that's a little hard to grasp what that means unless you look at what the Greek word there. The Greek word there is the Greek word kenosis, which means it's an emptying out of self. It's like cleaning something out except nothing needed to be cleaned. It's like turning your pockets inside out. You ever go through the TSA in the airport and they, you know, they scan you and they said, there's something triggering this, and they want you to take your belt off, they want you to, do you have any, I remember going through it one time, I was, when I was in a suit, coming back home from something, and I, you know, and I've got everything out, and finally he said, well, turn your pockets inside out. So I turned, and there was a little piece of foil from a, from a chewing gum wrapper, and buried down in the folds of my pocket, and that was setting off the, de- the detector. I didn't even realize it was in there. But I had to empty everything out. He emptied out all of his attributes. And we know that. I don't have time to go through all the examples of that because there's a place where he takes Peter and John, uh, uh, Peter and, 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 and John, yeah, up on this mountain. He says, you wait here and pray. And he went on and prayed for a while. And then all of a sudden his body turned into the glory that was who he was, began to come out of him. And we didn't walk around like that all the time. And he said his face shone, his clothes shone bright as the noonday sun. So anyway, he laid all that aside. And coming in the likeness of a man, he took on human flesh, which means he's now subject to the same physical limitations that you and I are subject to. 
He's going to get tired. He's got to only be in one place at the same time. He, he's, got to, you know, he's got to eat. He's got to sleep. I don't want to shock you, but he had to go to the bathroom. He was human. His body functioned like your body and my body functioned. Keep going. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He's emptying out his own ambitions. He's emptying out his own plans. He's emptying out his own way of doing things. He's totally submitting himself to his father, and he's humbling himself now even more so to become obedient to the point of death. We'll see that as we get a little further into this. Even to the death of the cross. The the reference to the death of a cross refers to the fact that at that time, it was the most excruciating form of execution man had ever designed, at least up until that point. It was designed by the Phoenicians and it was adopted by the Romans. And I don't want to go into the horror of it. But, but, but and not only that, it was humiliating. It was reserved for the worst criminals. And so to, to be humbled even to the death of a cross was to identify with the worst of the society, the worst of human beings, and to die their kind of death. Verse 9. Therefore God highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. It's interesting. We sang about the power of the name tonight. But the power in that name is not just because it's the name Jesus. The power in that name is because Jesus submitted himself. He submitted his whole life, his service here, to the will of the Father, even to the point of death. He emptied himself out. He humbled himself to come as a servant and then humbled himself ultimately to die that death on a cross. And because he emptied himself out and totally submitted his life to do the will of the Father, the Father was now able to pour his power through the power of that name that still submitted to the Father. Is it possible that in the church we throw the name of Jesus around so loosely? No wonder it doesn't have any power on our lips. It's kind of become the Christian tradition, it's the end of a prayer. In Jesus' name, amen, which means we can eat now. But no reverence for what the name is, who the name is. No reverence for why that name is reverenced in heaven, because this is why that name is reverenced in heaven. It's because he humbled himself and served all of mankind. But ultimately, he humbled himself and served completely his Father's will. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. The reason every knee has to bow to his name is because he bowed his name to the Father's. It goes on. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Keep going. Therefore, oh, the word therefore. The word therefore means that what he's about to say is based on what he 
just said. So what he just gave us, have this mind in you which also is in Christ Jesus. He's using Jesus as an example of how we are to see ourselves in relation to God and in relation to one another. And now he's shown us the example of what Jesus has done and now he's going to tell us what the effect that should have on us. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in, your, in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Go on, I'll come back to that in a minute. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So the question is this. If God has given us, if Christ has given us instructions of what it means to follow him, that when we look at those to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and then follow him, and we look at those and it looks impossible, how can I really do that? Oh, maybe for a day? Here's the answer. You can't. It's God who is at work in you. Both to will and to do his good pleasure. Now, so much of the time we in church, in our prayers, in the work we do for God, we're trying to get enlist God's help in what we want to see done. So we see God's word, we see God, the Holy Spirit, we see Jesus, and we see the God the Father as resources that we can call upon to enable us to do what we're supposed to do. And that's not what the scriptures say at all. And when we do that, we're using the Bible as an aid to help us. And it will never work for you that way because it was not designed to work for you that way. This word was designed to rule your life. That went over big. This word was designed to rule your life. This word will have as much effect on your life as you allow it to govern you. But if you're using the word to help you feel better, if you're using the word to help you have more money, if you're using the word to help you be healed, if you're using the word for your purposes, it's not going to work for you with the full power of God. God's gracious, but he wants something far better to you. Now, God wants to do those things in your life, but he wants to do them his way as you submit to his will. So, now I want to go back to a verse that's before this, because go back to verse 13 for a second. I mean, I've been quoting this verse, verse 13. I move quickly. For it's God who's at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's not just God who's at work in you, it's God who's at work in you to change your will and then to produce in you for his good pleasure. And that's exciting to know that, but verse 12, go back to verse 12. We're to work out our own fear of salvation with fear and trouble. Wait a minute, but Pastor John, no, no, no. I know myself that, that Paul teaches in Romans and other places, we're saved by grace, not by our works. And that's exactly right. 
This is not talking about saving you to get into heaven by your works with fear and trembling. This is working out the salvation that was born in you when you received Christ. God put his kingdom, God put his spirit, God put his nature inside of you when you were born again. And now he wants to work this to the outside. In another month or so, when we start teaching on renewing the mind on Sunday mornings, we'll talk about this process because it's all keyed with how you learn to change how you think. But notice it's with fear and trembling. The fear and trembling is why? Verse 13. Because it's God who's at work in you. So when you get promptings in you, when you get leadings in you, and we just kind of take them for granted, then we're not, letting, we're not doing this with fear and trembling. What that means, let me just state you what it means. Because it's God who's at work in us, we are to treat his work in us with great reverence because of who it is that's working in us and that it's his will and it's his pleasure he's trying to work in us. So to do this, so what, what we're saying here, what Paul is saying here, is, is this work of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. There's a, there's a theological word that's used for this. It's called consecration, not concentration, consecration. Consecrating your life to him. And, and what that means, it doesn't just mean, you know, God, I'm going to love you with all my heart, although that's part of it. It literally means putting your life in God's hands for God to use you the way he wants you. Your life now belongs to him for his purposes, the ultimate purpose for your life, but also your daily life, what he wants you to do in situations. Someone he may want you to talk to, you don't want to talk to. It's are you doing this for his purposes or are you doing, making decisions for your own purposes? And this is a process. But it's God who's at working you to do this. All right. So let's look at Jesus. Let's look at how Jesus did this. And the reason this is important is because we tend to think of Jesus as way up there in terms of his holiness, and we see ourselves as down here as just worms. We're trying so... After all, we're just human. I mean, isn't that right, Gary? We're just human. We can't really expect to do this. You can't really expect to deny yourself. You can't really expect to live a holy life. Can't, I mean, after all, we're, we're human. And isn't that what grace is all about? No, it's not what grace is all about. It's not a permission to just be human. God recognizes that we are. But because it's God that's at work in us, it ought to work. Because it's God that's at work in us, we ought to be able to get there. Because to say, I can't do it because I'm just human, is to not work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is God who's invested in you. God's invested his son's life. He paid his son's life so that he could put his purpose and his will and his work in you, his love in you. He's invested himself in you. And when we just excuse us, well, I can't do that because I'm just human, we're, we're telling God, you can't do this in me. All right, well, let's look at how Jesus did that. Because after all, he's Jesus. Of course he can submit himself to his father. Of course, he's obedient because he's God's son. And after all, he was born, he lived a sinless life. Of course, he can do that. 
But what you may not realize is he lived a sinless life by making a decision to be obedient every moment of every day. Now, he had an advantage over you and me because the flesh he was born with did not have a bent towards sin, whereas your flesh and my flesh was already like that. The example I use in teaching this is, is if you, when you buy a new car, if you've ever bought one, when they run that car off, bring that car off the assembly line or however they do it nowadays, those wheels are, are, are in an alignment according to the manufacturer's specifications. So in theory, you should be able to drive that car out of the showroom, out onto a level highway, and just take your hands off the wheel, and that car should track straight ahead because the wheels are properly aligned. But if you drive that car through one or two New England winters with our potholes and you may bump into a curb somewhere, those wheels are going to get out of alignment. So now in order to keep the car straight, you have to exert effort to be able to keep that car. If you ever done, I've done that. I've headed out on a long trip one time and I didn't bother to check it and I realized halfway out on the highway that our wheels were out of alignment and I'm going to spend the next day trying to hold this car straight. And not only is it hard, but it's not safe. And I remember driving cars before there was power steering when you had to use physical effort. And so when you and I are born into this world, our flesh is already out of alignment. It has a tendency to go off into one ditch or the other. So it makes a power that's greater than yourself to be able to hold that car in proper alignment. But that's because the seed from which you were born was the seed of man that was fallen, your parents all the way back to Adam. Jesus' seed that was sown into Mary's womb came from the Holy Spirit. And the, her, his physical body came from her seed, from her egg. And so his flesh, although it was human and it had the capacity to sin, it was born in perfect alignment. It did not have the tendency to sin. So when it says he came in the likeness of human flesh, it doesn't mean his flesh wasn't human. It just wasn't exactly like yours or mine because he, his flesh did not have the tendency to sin. But we know he could because Hebrews tells us he was tempted in all ways. And we're going to look at that in a minute. He was tempted in all ways as you and I are, yet he did not sin. So if he wasn't able to sin, it would have been no temptation. In fact, we're going to look in just a moment at some of those temptations that he was led into. All right, so that's, the, that's what we're doing here. We're looking at Jesus as our example. So how did Jesus do this? Did he do it through his own strength and determination because he's the Son of God? After all, he's God's Son. He, has, you know, he can talk to the Father better than we can. He hears from the Father better Of course he can, he can do these things. But if that's what Jesus came as, if he came at just to prove how holy he was, if he came to just to prove what he could do, then where does that leave us? It leaves us the way most religion does. It looks at him as high and lifted up in a stained glass window, and oh God, we worship him, and we should worship him, but, but there's no way I can do that. But he came so that he could reproduce himself in the church, so that we could be the body of Christ. Not 
representatives of Christ, but the body of Christ. So not only does my, my body has the same capability that my head has. So, all right, let's, let's move on. We've got to move on. Okay, everybody with me so far? No, we're moving on anyway. So if he had set such a high standard, then we, have no, we would have no hope of ever reaching it, just like they did in the Old Testament. So let's go to Matthew chapter 3. At this point, Jesus has lived 30 years on the earth, has done no public ministry, he's done no miracles, he's done nothing that's extraordinary. We know that because when he goes back into his hometown, they wonder, who are you that's so special? So, Jesus came from Galilee to John, that's John the Baptist, his nephew, at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Now, what you have to understand is this baptism was not like the baptism that you and I go through. This was a baptism under the old law practices, which was a baptism of repentance. So when you came to be baptized in water, it represented a cleansing. So you would be confessing your sins, and then you would submit to this yourself to this baptism come up, and it would represent that your sins were washed away. So here you have Jesus. Although he's man, he is still God. And he has not sinned. And he's coming. Look, here's the evidence of it. John tried to prevent him. Go back to verse 12. John tried to stop him, saying, no, no, you don't need to be baptized. I need to be baptized by you. He was recognizing that this is a sinless son of God. This is the sinless lamb of God. So here's the point. Jesus is coming to submit to an Old Testament rite that indicated he needed his sins forgiven when he knew he hadn't sinned. So why would he do that? He's humbling himself to submit to the Old Testament law's requirements. This is a sign of his willingness to submit, to lay aside, hey, I'm the son of God. I don't need to do this. I haven't sinned. The rest of you turkeys need to do this, but I don't need to do this. I'll skip this part and I'll start my ministry. But no, he had to submit to the same things you and I had to submit to. And look what happened when he did. Verse 15. Jesus answered and said unto him, Permit me to do so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, it's right that I should fulfill the requirements of the law. And then he, he allowed him. Keep going. So when he'd been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending, upon, descending like a dove and alighting on him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. His obedience allowed God to send the Holy Spirit, to fill him with the Holy Spirit. How do I know he was filled with the Holy Spirit? Luke chapter 4. Now what I did is Luke's chapter 3 gives you the same story, but it doesn't give you John's reaction when he came. Now this is right afterwards. Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit went out and held a meeting and thousands came and he healed them all and there was a great revival started because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not what it says, is it? Look, this just struck me so... I mean, I've taught this before, but it struck me in a way today. 
Maybe it's because of, of where I've, I've been lately. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. Stop there a second. Here you have the second person of the Godhead. The Bible teaches us that through the Son of God, that through the Word, God created the universe. It was created by the Father's will, but it was the Son that carried it out. I don't have time to go through all the scriptures that say that. And now he is submitting to the third person of the Godhead to be led by him as a man. Was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Oh, he's going to go save souls. Verse 2. To be tempted for 40 days by the devil. I thought Jesus taught us to ask the Father, lead us not in temptation and deliver us from evil. What is this all about? Well, the word tempted there actually means tested. Now, James tells us God can't be tested with evil and he won't test you with evil, tempt you with evil, but he will test you. Ask Abraham. Abraham went, we talked about Abraham last year. We walked through the steps of faith of Father Abraham and we saw that the ultimate test when he believed God through 25 years and then beyond that and he had the son of the promise right there but his whole confidence that God's promise that he would be the father of many nations, he could now see the fulfillment of it in his son. And God says in Genesis 22, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, and I want you to go offer him to me on a mountain that I'll tell you when you get there. And the Bible says he tested Abraham. He tested Job. Job was tested. Peter was tested. That's an amazing scripture there. I was meditating on that this week. Peter, in all his boldness, right on the night when Jesus is ready to go to the cross, and he's basically, I'll die with you, I'll follow you wherever you are. And Peter, Jesus says, Peter, Satan has come to get permission to sift you like wheat. Well, who did he get permission from? Who does he need it from? He had to get permission from God to sift Peter. Now, that violates a lot of teaching that I've heard. But Jesus said so. Why would he do that? Well, the good news is Jesus said, but I prayed for you. Not if you, if you come through it, so that when you pass the test, you will be able to encourage the others, which means they were going to go through some tests also. God doesn't test us to get us to fail. He tests us because the test brings things out in us that we didn't, would not have come out, with us, out of us unless we were under that pressure. And if you think about it, I'm sure you can go back and look at times in your life when you were under pressure and you came to God, you turned to God and you dug into the word and you saw what that word would do in your life and it deepened your faith in the word. It deepened the stories I told Sunday. The testimony Sunday about tithing and things we went through in our lives as tithers. Those were pressures. Those were testing times in my life. It's great to look back now on the results, but we're going through them. I couldn't see the results. But it built in me a faith. It built in me a confidence that never would have been if I hadn't gone through those tests. So God will test you to bring out in you 
what he knows is ca- you're capable of if you will allow him to bring you through it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, God, that, says that you're no temptation that's come against you that's not common to man. But with it, God will provide the grace, provide the way of escape so that you can endure it. So a lot of times, those t- times we want to get out of them and God wants to lead you through them. Tempted for 40 days by the devil. Now, why would Jesus need to be tempted? Why would he need to be tested and above all things by the devil? Well, well here, Jesus is now, he's God wearing human flesh. God without human flesh cannot be tested, cannot be tempted. You can't tempt God. In fact, the Bible says you can't tempt him with evil. He can't be tempted. How can you tempt him? Son of God, how could you tempt? But wearing flesh, which is the avenue through which temptation comes at you. Temptation always comes at you through one of your five senses and through your flesh. That's one of the things fasting brings out. It shows you how strong your flesh has become. And one of the purposes of it is for you to gain dominion over your flesh again. I've got to move along. So he's now wearing flesh, and he's now got to deal with, he's, the devil's going to tempt him in three basic areas. The first way he tempts him, I'm not going to go through the details of this, the first way that he tempts him is he tempts his flesh's desire and need for food, and he waits till he hasn't eaten for 40 days. Some of you may have gone through and missed a meal or two and found out how, tempt, how difficult that is. I know when I started, I thought I was going to die. I started in agony the night before. I'm having hunger pains the night before, and I just had a big meal. It shows you how strong our flesh can get when we don't do what Paul says, I keep my flesh under. He ate nothing, and afterwards when they had ended, he was hungry, verse 3. Oh, there was no verse 3, yeah. So Satan tempts him. He tempts him with food, And then he tempts him, the second temptation he brings to him, we're not going to go through them, but the second temptation is to fulfill God's will, but by another way. Because what Satan says, he tooks him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the earth, which is what Jesus came to redeem and to buy back with his sacrifice of his life. And Satan says, there's another way to do this. I'll give it to you. I know what you came for. I'll give you the kingdoms of this earth that you came for, why did he have them? Because Adam gave them to him. Where did Adam get them? God gave them to him. And when Adam listened to Satan and disobeyed, Adam turned the kingdoms of this earth over to Satan, which is why the Bible calls him in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this earth. And this had to be real, because otherwise it wouldn't have been a temptation to Jesus. He would have just laughed at him. So temptations, he said, I'll give you this earth. I'll give you the dominions. I'll give it what you came for. All you've got to do is just worship me. And I'm, he, we didn't say he said this, but I got to think he implied. And there's nobody looking. All you got to do is just bow your knee boop, to me. Just that, just that, that's it. And you, I'll give it to you. But the temptation was to do God's plan by a different method that got him out of, from beneath the suffering he was going to have to go through. And then the third, the third temptation was to test God. 
was to test God, not prove God, to test God. Hebrews 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. That means actually went through. He had to learn, even though he was God's son, as a man, he had to learn obedience. Now notice who led him into the test. Notice who's training him in this obedience. It's the Spirit of God with whom he's now filled. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. In the same way, it was God's Spirit that was at work in Jesus, both to get him to will and to do God's good pleasure. Let's move on. Luke 4, 14. Now it's all done. Look at the results. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Notice he didn't have the power of the Spirit flowing through him until he had submitted to the process where his submission to God had been tested. And now he returns in the power of the Spirit. And the church wants to get baptized in the Holy Spirit and go out in the power of the Spirit without submitting their lives into the hands of God, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In other words, to deny yourself and take up your cross and then follow me. This is good stuff. Not because I'm speaking it. God's tests for us are not for us to fail, but to strengthen us. And the result was he had great glory to give unto God. Verses 15. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth as he'd been, as he'd been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And when he was handed, this is his home church. And he was handed the book of Isaiah. When he'd opened the book, he found the place where it was written, which is chapter 61. Look at this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. In other words, I'm not going out as the Son of God to preach the gospel to the poor. I'm not going out as the Son of God to heal the brokenhearted. I'm not going out as the Son of God to bring liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. It's the Spirit of the Lord who's upon me. That's the power that was now at work through him because the Spirit had been at work in him to train him to both do the will and to, and to God's pleasure. During his public ministry that began here, he was completely submitted to his father's will and his father's ways. The, the power of that just, has got to hit us. Because we can hear that and say, well, that's good for Jesus. We can say, well, that, yeah, that's good for Jesus. But he's called us 
to that same place. He said things like to Philip in, in, uh, in John chapter 14, if you've seen me, because Philip says to him at one point, I think it's Philip, he says, well, well then show us the Father. He says, no, don't you understand? These three years. If you've seen me, you've seen him. And then at other times he said, I only do what I see my Father do. I only say, let that sink in, I only say what I hear my Father say. That means Jesus spoke no casual words. But every word he spoke had power. Every word he spoke had influence. And sometimes that influence produced wonderful results in people, and sometimes it made them angry at him, but never did his words produce no impact. In this month of reflection, it might be good to reflect on, do my words reflect what Jesus says about that situation? Or I am, am I quick to just engage my thinking and my mind and my ideas I wonder what God thinks when he looks at social, Christian social media. And he's looking at the bride of Christ and the garbage. I, I don't look at it. The garbage, but I hear reports of things. The garbage that comes out of so-called Christians to connect their mouth with their flesh and their opinions. There will be a day of accounting. For every word, Jesus says, we will give an account. I'm not saying that to scare us, but just the way to be safe in that is to grow and endeavor. Again, it's God at work in you. You've got the Spirit of God in you. And if you'll begin to be sensitive to Him, He'll catch things you're about to say. Or if you've said it, I've had that happen. I've said something, and it wasn't bad. And the more you sensitive to him, the more sensitive you become. Things that other people say, "What was deal? What big deal was that?" Yeah, but it, it 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 pricked your spirit, and that was not something Jesus would have said. Put the word. Go back up again to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the year of Jubilee. That's the deliverance. Okay, we've got to move on. This was, listen carefully. This is one of the things to reflect on this month. This was his sole purpose for his life, was to only do the will of his father and only say what he heard his father say. That's the essence of consecration. Say, so, well, that's Jesus. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's nice. But Jesus said something at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount that reflects this. Because he talks to believers. And he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And what did he say after that? And do not do the will of my Father. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the will of my Father? Many of you will say, 
on that day. But didn't we do these miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out devils in your name? Didn't we do all these things in your name? And I will say, depart from me. Why? Because I don't know you. You who practice lawlessness. Not you who slip, not you who make a sin, not you who practice law. In other words, you serve me for your purposes. You serve me the way you want to serve me. You've not submitted your life to the way my Father wants you to serve me. So I don't know what, God, I don't know what God's purpose for my life is. Maybe you haven't really submitted your life to whatever it is he wants you to do. Now remember, we look at this, I don't know, that's hard to do, but it's God who's at work in you, both to will. So even if you're struggling, I'm not sure I want to do that. Be honest with him. Give him an opening. He's in you to work on your will. When I started this years ago, I didn't want to do any of that. But he's got me doing things I never wanted to do before. But now I want to. Because I allow him to work on my will. Because he's at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Okay, we've got to bring this to a head. All right, now, this is really brought out in bold relief when we come to the culmination of Jesus' purpose on the earth. And that's the night before the cross and on the cross. The culmination of his life work began with a renewed surrender of his life in the garden. Listen to what he went through. Listen to what he went through. We don't have time to draw this out. He was betrayed by one of his own staff. He, God's son, was accused by the religious leaders of blasphemy. God was accused of blasphemy. He was illegally arrested and subjected to an unlawful trial. At the trial, the testimony against him was perjured. In his hands, the Romans mocked him as a king, even though he was a king. They spat on him. They plucked his beard. They slapped him and stuck a crown of thorns on his head. They stripped him and put a robe on him and bowed down to him with a reed, mocking him, even though he's the one that created them. He was then beaten almost beyond human recognition, according to Isaiah. And then he was nailed to the cross. On that cross, in the agony he was going through, the religious leaders stood around him and they mocked him and then said, if you really are the Son of God, prove it by coming down. Prove who you are. Stand up for who you are. Show us who you are. And his only response to all of this was, Father, forgive them where they don't know how, they don't know what they're doing. He really felt that pain. He really felt that spit in his face. He really felt that slap. He really felt that challenge to who he was. And he stood there, the scripture says, dumb like a lamb. He didn't answer them. The only time he opened his mouth was when his father's authority was challenged by Pilate. And Pilate said, don't you know who I am? And Jesus said, you couldn't do anything unless my father enabled you to do it. Where did he get the power to do that? Well, he's the son of God. Of course he could go through that. Of course he could lay his life down. Of course he could take his cross up. 
But we're going to see now in Matthew. Let's go to Matthew 26 quickly. We're going to see what the Bible says, how he did this. Jesus came to them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and think over what's going to happen to me. No, while I go and pray over there. So the night before this agony, what does Jesus do? He goes to be alone with his father to pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. This is the human part of him. He's repulsed. He knows what he's going to go through. He knows what he's about to face. And he knows the agony of it. It's not just the pain of what he's going to go on, but the sin of the world is going to be poured out on him. The weight of that sin to the point that for the first time in his existence, he's going to be the, have the Father's face turn away from him and cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows that's what's coming, and he's in agony over this. He's repulsed by it. He doesn't want to do that. His will now for the first time rises up. Next verse. He said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Now, whether whether there was fear in here or not, I don't know. I've seen some commentators. We don't know that. We just know what he said. I'm sorrowful, even to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed. Now, if you've ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, it begins with a scene in the garden, and there's this wonderful portrayal of Satan. You've got to believe Satan's in this scene right now. He's swarming, because Satan knows what's at stake here. He knew in the very beginning when he tried to tempt him to shortcut it. And so Jesus, how does Jesus pray? What does he pray when he's facing a denying of himself he doesn't want to do? When he's facing taking up his cross, which he doesn't want to do, what does he do here? He turns to his father and says, if it's possible, can this cup pass from me? And in the scripture, it looks like it was a a quick answer. We don't know that. Let this cup pass from me. I've got to imagine there was a wrestling inside of him. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Keep going. Then he came to his disciples and found them asleep. And he said, Peter, what? Couldn't you not watch with me one hour? In other words, he needed their, he needed their help. He needed them there praying with him. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And we'll see, they went back to sleep and Peter gave in to the temptation. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. A second time he went away and prayed, Oh, Father, if this cup can pass from me, unless I drink, pass away from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. Keep going. And he came and found them sleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went again and prayed a third time, saying the same words. What was going on inside of him? What was enabling him to not go from 
can this cup possibly pass from me? Understand, he said, if I wanted to, I could call down legions of, de- of angels and they would deliver me. But he restrained what he had the right to do. What enabled him to do this? How could he come to this final conclusion? I believe the answer is in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. A little phrase that's tucked in there. And how much more shall the blood of Christ, look at this, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. The same spirit that led him in the wilderness and enabled him to go through those three tests. The same spirit that enabled him to every day only do what he saw his father do. The same spirit that every day enabled him to only say what he heard his father say. The same spirit that enabled him to deny himself and now enabled him to take up his cross. That same spirit now strengthened him and enabled him both to will and to do the father's Good pleasure. Now he did this not only as a substitute for us, but as an example for us of how we are to consecrate our lives to his will. Ephesians chapter 3. This is written from Paul to just church members, not to pastors not to the apostles. This is written to just church folk. For this reason I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. What? That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to what? Be strengthened with might. That word might is dunamis. It refers to the very power of of God. The other word that's translated power sometimes is the Greek word exousia, which means authority. But this refers to the power of God, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Oh, it says in Hebrew, in Romans 8, 11, dwells in you, doesn't it? Okay. According to the to be strengthened with might, with power, how? Through his spirit in your inner man. For it is God who is at work in you, both the will and to do his good pleasure. What is he empowering you to do? That Christ might dwell in your hearts. In other words, that he might live his life in your heart and through your heart, through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may come to comprehend and understand with all the saints what is the width and length and height and depth and to know by experience the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Why? So that you may be filled up, that you may be filled up with all of the fullness of God. But if God's going to fill you with himself, there can't be parts of you that don't want to do what he wants done. In order for God to fill you with himself, he has to have the right to all of you. Have you ever go to fill up your gas tank in a hurry? You know it's empty because you got in there in fumes. And you go like this and it stops after about 10 seconds. I know it was empty. And you look at there, it's only a half a gallon. What's happened? Because there's air in there 
Gasoline can't get in where the air is unless there's some place for the air to come out. You can't have air and gasoline occupy the same spot. So there has to be a vent so that when you pour the gasoline in, what was already in that tank comes out. In order for God to fill you with himself, you have to come out. He emptied himself. He denied himself. Now you have a real advantage because you've already died. If you're a Christian, you, your old man died. The, diff, the only thing is you're carrying him around. He's strapped to you. And as long as you keep talking with him and listening to him, you're keeping him alive. But you've died to who you were. This isn't so you'll be saved. This is so God can begin to fill you with himself. But when I start my time in the morning, because sometimes I wake up and I don't feel like I'm a Christian. Sometimes I wake up and I've had it. I got home bed last night. I was discouraged about stuff. I get into bed and I start to have this pity party. She looks at me and I look at her and I say, I can't do this. I don't need to do this. I mean, I was overwhelmed. I was going down in a dark hole fast and I stopped it like that. How? Because I remembered that that's my old man. He doesn't have power over me anymore. I don't have a right to feel sorry for myself. I'm a child of the living God. God lives in me. I'm born again. I'm his child. He loves me. He lives in me. His spirit's in me. How dare I feel sorry for myself? That's that old man. That's self. And I denied that self. I don't give him place. Now, I would love to say I never give him place. But I, I, I train myself. Have this mind in you, which was, I, I purposely do that in the morning. I set myself. That old man's dead. I'm not going to give him place today. And if he rises up, I'm going to deny him. Now, I slip a lot of times, but I'm getting much better at catching it. So I can, you can walk away from who that man is, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. Now, unto him, and who is that him? Who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to what? The power that's in heaven. No, the power... That's at work in us. It's the same spirit that enabled Jesus to consecrate himself. The same spirit that enabled him to deny himself and take up our cross and follow his Father. That same spirit is at work in you. Both the will, help you will to do what he wants you to do and to do for his pleasure but we have to recognize who it is that's at work in us it's God that's at work in you it's God that's at work in you it's the God that paid that precious price so he could come to be in you and work in you it's that God who has an image of you, has an image of you so far beyond anything you can see of yourself. We walk around with old images of ourselves, and God is an image of you as a holy child of God, serving him with all your heart, loving him with all your heart. God has this image of you. He's at work in you, both the will and to do his good pleasure. He's at work in you to form Christ in you. Paul said, I labor until Christ be formed in you. God's plan is to get you to the place where when you look at you, you see Christ. So that's impossible. God's at work in you to do it. It's only impossible 
if we don't allow him to do the work in us. And I believe God is awakening his church, awakening this church. I know he's awakening this man. I know he's awakening us because there's a great work he still wants to do. And that's not a work of politics. It's not a work of causes. It's a work of the operation of the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts. It's the work of that love that Christ be formed in us, be rooted and grounded in love so that the world can come to see the power of the love of God for one another. And that power was, of that love was demonstrated on that cross. When Jesus never answered himself, never defended himself, but he bore your sin and my sin and the sin of the world, the weight of that sin, he bore on himself that he might set an ungodly, unholy, unthankful people free to come and be sons and daughters of God just like God is speaking to his people. And he's saying, I'm in you. I'm in you. Will you give me an opportunity just to let me work in you to make you willing? Are you willing to let me make you willing? And the purpose of tonight is to blow away all the excuses. I can't do that. I'm just human. Yes, you're just human. But it's God who's working you. It's God. The ability and power of God is at work in you to cause you to be surrender your life to be fully his so that he can fully use you for his purposes. Let's pray. Father, this is the purpose for which you've created us, that you may fill us with yourself. And it's not just so that we can go out and serve you but it's so that you can have us for your own and we can have you. That first man and woman, they were yours and they were completely yours and you were completely theirs. And everything you've done since then in relationship with mankind has been to restore us back to that relationship and now you offer to us that. You've paid the price. You've done everything you can do. And now tonight you're reaching your heart out to us. Jesus said it this way, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you just open your heart and let us in, we'll come in and we'll live in you and we'll live through you. Father, may the Spirit of God take what we've heard tonight and touch our hearts deeply, not just when we leave tonight, but we get up tomorrow. The next time we go to pray, the next time we open our Bibles, the next time we want to say words, may the Spirit check us and ask the question, or is this what Jesus would say in this situation? We can't do this ourselves. We've seen tonight that Jesus couldn't, but we've seen tonight that you're at work in us. And Lord, we come tonight to surrender to you. Just take a moment right now. I know the hour's late. To just... Be quiet for a moment and, and ask yourself the question. See if you can identify what's the Holy Spirit saying to me today. And you may not hear it tonight. You may hear it tomorrow morning. But listen. He wants to talk with you.
And maybe you're accustomed to hearing him and maybe you're not. But he wants to talk to you somehow to communicate to you what it is he wants to show you or say to you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I would encourage you in the time you take for the, during the rest of this month, I would encourage you to do some more fasting. But I encourage you to just make sure you set aside some time to be quiet before the Lord. Some of you have very busy schedules, but God can show you a way to carve out some time. It doesn't have to be hours. It can be 15 minutes. Maybe there's 15 minutes of television you don't need to watch. Maybe there's 15 minutes of eating you don't need to eat. This is something far more important than anything else to allow God to speak to you, to show you what he wants to do in your life. Thank you for your attention tonight. I want to pray tonight for over the offering. Of course, we give, we don't receive the offering the way we used to. We have the the containers in the back where you can leave your offering. You can do it online through texting or or going through our website. You, You know how to do that. There's the instructions up there. But I want to pray over what's been given. Father, we just thank you for people's faithfulness, but we thank you for your faithfulness. We're learning on Sunday mornings, Father, about the tithe, that the tithe is yours, it's holy, but you entrust it to us so that we can return it to you as as an act of worship, as an acknowledgement that we don't own our lives, we don't own anything, that we're stewards of everything, and you've entrusted this to us, then if we will return it to you and put you first in our lives, that now enables you to put us first. So we bring the tithe to you tonight as an act of worship. And we ask you to bless and honor what we do. Beyond that, we bring our free will offerings, what we desire to give and to sow into the kingdom of God so that the lives of other people may be blessed just as the giving of other people has allowed our lives to be blessed. Teach us to be generous. And we thank you for what has been given in Christ's name tonight. We give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. I'm going to stand, please. We're going to continue on Wednesday and Sunday with this series of, of Robert Young, Pastor uh, Robert Young, Pastor um, um, Robert Morris. Thank you. Uh, on on uh, this series on the on the blessed life, I trust that it's it's touching your heart. God God is making adjustments in people's lives, and He's doing it so that the blessings of God, the peace of God and the victory of God can be poured out in and through our lives. Thank you for your attention tonight. Let's end with a little worship. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Let's hit one more time as we go. There's power in the name.